Well, good morning. We have uh, just engaged in a controversial act. Or at least we would have if we were Presbyterian. Uh, this hymn that we just sang, In Christ Alone, uh, has been the source of contention uh, among the people doing up the new hymnal for the Presbyterian Church USA. That's the mainline uh, Presbyterians. They did not entirely like this hymn. They liked the whole hymn, but there were some words that they didn't like. On the second, this is probably the fourth slide, second half of the second verse. Till on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. For every sin on him was laid. Here in the death of Christ I live. It was that second line there that was not embraced fully by the committee doing the hymnal. What they wanted that to read was, on that cross where Jesus died, the love of God was magnified, which is also true, but is not what the writers of the hymn intended. And so when the writers of the hymn were asked if the Presbyterians could change the words, the writers of the hymn, politely, because they were talking to Presbyterians, told them to go stuff it. No, we wrote these words, and these are the words, and if you want to change the words, then you're not going to use the hymn. So the Presbyterians are going to be going without this hymn. When we talk about the cross and what it is for us as evangelicals to understand the cross and to be devoted to Jesus' death on the cross, to make sense of what was going on on the cross, we're in an area where our main difference as evangelicals is with other Protestants. Well, next, next week, for example, uh, we'll talk about a place where evangelicals differ in particular from uh, not only some mainline Protestants but also from our Catholic friends. Here's a place where, frankly, we have a lot in common with the Catholics. As you may know, if you've ever been to a Catholic church or if you've ever seen a Catholic friend wearing a crucifix, what's different between the cross you find in a Catholic church and the cross you find in a Protestant church. Jesus. Yeah, and actually this is one of those many cases where the answer is Jesus. Yeah, yeah. usually in, in, a, you know, in, in a Catholic church you find Jesus hanging on the cross. That's the crucifix. Most Protestant churches uh, you will find uh, uh, something like this. This is a, a, a cross that was given to us by Ethel Burney, who is a longtime uh, member and uh, trustee here at Stone Chapel. Uh, you may not be able to see it, but sometimes you'll have in a Protestant cross this little, some little symbol in the middle. This is, uh, looks like IHS. That's not because Jesus' middle initial is H. Um, but I think that's where Jesus H. Christ comes from, honestly. is a misunderstanding. The, the H is actually the Greek letter eta, which with the I forms the diphthong, which is the opening vowel of Jesus' name, Jesus in Greek. Uh, but you, usually in a, in a Protestant church you might get this, or you'll get, like we have here, uh, a, a, simply a, an empty cross, and that's so that the elders can remind the pastor there's still room to put somebody up there. Uh, but usually our focus has been uh, on the finished work of the cross, and that's often why we tend to have Jesus taken down from there. But our Catholic friends, again, there, there is a, a great deal of, of uh, uh, similarity. Uh, just yesterday, Bruce and uh, 
and uh, Jan Cummer and I were at our, an ordination service for my friend uh, John Wargle, Father John, who's going to be uh, at this God Wings and Beer thing tomorrow night. Father John is now a Roman Catholic priest, uh, and the entrance hymn was called At the Lamb's High Feast We Sing. At the Lamb's High Feast We Sing, Praise to Our Victorious King Who Has Washed Us in the Tide Flowing from His Pierced Side. Praise we him whose love divine, this is the line that Yoda wrote, gives his sacred blood for wine, gives his body for the feast, Christ the victim, Christ the priest. Where the paschal blood is poured, death's dark angel sheathes his sword. Israel's hosts triumphant go through the wave that drowns the foe. Praise we Christ whose blood was shed, paschal victim, paschal bread. With his sincerity and love, eat we manna from above. So with our Catholic friends, we as evangelicals tend not only to acknowledge the atoning death of Jesus on the cross, but to spend a lot of time thinking about that and focusing on that. And we especially see that, I think, in some of the hymns that we have. And one of the reasons that I chose the hymns we have for this morning has to do with the fact that there's a whole lot of blood flowing in them. Now, this can be off-putting to some people. You may remember almost 10 years ago when Mel Gibson's Passion movie came out, the objection to that. Now, there were legitimate objections to elements of anti-Semitism in the movie, which, given what we know of Mel Gibson, ended up to probably be authentic. There were some objections on historical grounds, although for the most part, I think they got most of the important stuff right. But there was a whole lot of objection to the blood, to the violence of the movie. Again, this movie did depict a crucifixion preceded by a savage beating. So it was probably, if anything, a little underdone. But I especially think about that one scene where after Jesus has been beaten, he's been flogged, and then dragged away, you have in the square this stone pillar that he had been chained to, and then all around it is blood. And I think that was designed to be evocative of the altar and the old temple. And of course, all the blood that would have been around that. The blood around the altar comes when the priests follow the prescriptions that God gives for giving the offering. and That involves sprinkling blood. The old temple would have been a very, very bloody place. So there is a bit of an ick factor, for one, if you don't like blood. But there also is a sense that this is a, a relic of a barbaric past. This is something that we sophisticated moderns should be able to get past, to grow out of. This is something that we should be able to transcend. After all, it was those ancient barbaric tribes that had human sacrifice. Or if they didn't have human sacrifice, they at least had blood sacrifice. And we really are much more refined than that, many people would like to think. And so it gets awkward when you come up to passages like this in the book of Hebrews in chapter 9, when Starting in verse 11, when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not man-made. 
that is to say, not part of this creation. He didn't enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. Blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they're outwardly clean. The writer of Hebrews here referring to the this prescriptions for how you do worship that are given in, in Leviticus. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. In the case of a will, it's necessary to prove the death of the one who made it because a will is in force only when somebody's died. It never takes effect while the one who made it is living. And that's why even the first covenant wasn't put into effect without blood. When Moses had proclaimed every commandment of the law to the people, he took the blood of calves together with water, scarlet wool and branches of hyssop. How does wool get to be scarlet? You dye it, right? Symbolizing blood. Sprinkled the scroll on all the people. He said, this is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you to keep. In the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tabernacle and everything used in its ceremonies. In fact, Torah requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. It was necessary then for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these sacrifices. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ didn't enter a man-made sanctuary that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself now to appear for us in God's presence. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again, like the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that isn't his own. And Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world, but now he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself, just as man is destined to die once and after that to face judgment. So Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people, and he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. It would appear to me that the writer of Hebrews doesn't find the blood thing to be optional. Maybe I'm reading this wrong. But it seems that he thinks that it is, in fact, necessary for this sacrifice to happen, that there is a reason for it, that what Jesus did on the cross was in radical continuity with the whole system of sacrifice that God laid out in Torah, but then, in a sense, in radical discontinuity with it because it completed it because it fulfilled it, ended up being what it all was pointing to. This is a tough pill to swallow if you find all of this blood and sacrifice business to be antiquated. There are other folks who have problems with this whole cross thing because they don't like the idea that God is wrathful. There's a man named Richard Rohr, a Catholic priest in this case, 
who says, here's how you understand when you're reading the Bible, here's how you understand whether you can trust what you're reading or not. If God is being described as less than the best person you know, then it must not be real. Leaving aside for a moment the question of how you know the best person you know to be the best person you know, uh, this is a clear example of kind of what we talked about last week, taking an approach to Scripture where you can be superior to it. You can pick and choose what you like and what you don't. Truth is that God's character throughout Scripture is described as infinitely just, infinitely good, infinitely pure, and more than once, injustice gets him more than a little bit ticked off. Some people have looked at the cross, the sacrifice of Jesus, in which the wrath of God was satisfied as divine child abuse, but this is not the way that the scriptures describe this. For one, this was in fact Jesus' own and therefore God's own voluntary self-sacrifice. But this was also a case where God's love and his wrath were fully expressed. And indeed, if you think about it, it may be the only way to have God's love and his wrath fully expressed. Remember what we read back in Romans, the end of, starting at the end of chapter 4. He, Christ, was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. And therefore, since we have been justified through faith, then we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. What Paul's talking about there is exactly what the writer of Hebrews was talking about, that Christ's death made a way, made it possible for us to be received by God. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, we also rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. And hope doesn't disappoint us because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. You see, at just the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. That's us. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person. Maybe for a good man, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? And, and not just that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Some folks object to the idea that there might, in fact, be a just reason for God to be wroth. This challenges that optimistic view of human nature, that if we can just tweak things right, if we can get the education right and maybe dial in the meds, that everybody's going to be okay. Everybody is not okay. Remember that book that came out in the 70s, I'm okay, you're okay, right? No. 
I'm not okay, you're not okay, thankfully God's not okay with that. So he does something about it. Some folks object to this whole idea that suffering might produce perseverance. We, a couple weeks ago, listened to part of Martin Luther King's speech in the March on Washington, his I Have a Dream speech, where in which he, he talked about the fact that unearned suffering is redemptive. He encouraged his people to continue to have faith that unearned suffering is redemptive. A lot of people don't like that idea. They don't like the idea that any suffering might be redemptive because then there might be something okay about suffering and they're not okay with that. No, King says, unearned suffering can be used by God to redeem, to bring reconciliation, and nowhere more so than in the unearned suffering of our Lord Jesus Christ. Some folks object to the idea that it might be necessary for justice to be done in the first place. Why can't God just wave his hand and make it all okay? But again, in Romans we read chapter 3, Paul says that God's righteousness has been revealed apart from Torah, but it's, it's a righteousness to which Torah and the prophets testify. And that's, that's why it was credited to him as righteousness instead of Abraham. The words it was credited to... Oh, I'm sorry, I just skipped a whole page. Sorry. Let's try that. <laughs> I didn't think you wrote it that way. Okay. But now... God's righteousness, apart from Torah, has been known, to which Torah and the prophets testify. This righteousness of God's comes through faith in Jesus Christ, or possibly through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, to all who believe. No difference, because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified then freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented him as an atoning sacrifice through faith in his blood. And, and God did this to demonstrate his justice. In his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did this, Paul says, to demonstrate his justice right now so as to be just and the one who makes just those who have so God is demonstrating both his justice, his righteousness, the fact that he is not capricious or arbitrary, that God does what he says, and that he is the one that makes that justice happen. He makes it happen to the good of those who justly would be under condemnation and would suffer punishment. Somebody's got to suffer that punishment. And that was Jesus. That was God himself. Obviously, if the scripture says that God presented his own son as an atoning sacrifice, and if you think that's divine child abuse, then you may not have a very high view of scripture. And again, we talked about last week when we were talking about Scripture. There are people who, when they encounter passages like that, will literally preach against them. They will say that we have 
transcended this, that we have gotten past this, that we know better. This is not the sort of thing I can do. This is not the sort of thing that we do here. And I think one of the reasons, one of the other reasons why people can object to this whole cross thing is that it really is something that clearly is testified to by the scriptures. If you reject this idea of the cross as an atoning sacrifice, then you really do have to reject a high view of scripture as the revealed word of God as something that's entirely trustworthy, entirely reliable, that is of supreme authority for all matters of faith and of conduct. You may wonder why when we say the creeds, we mention that Jesus was suffered under Pontius Pilate, or why at the beginning of Luke's gospel, Luke starts out by situating his story within the broader story of the Roman Empire. Why? Because this is something that happened. This is not just a notion. This is not just a symbol. The cross testifies to an historical event that the man Jesus was, in fact, crucified for our sake by the Roman authorities egged on by the political and religious leaders of the Jewish community of his time, he was crucified. And the cross can bring us uncomfortably close to the idea that if that happened, if it actually happened, then somehow we have to do business with that. We can't just theorize about it. We can't just decide what we might like to think about it. We have to understand that as a fact of history. And if we reckon with what the scriptures tells us, that this is in fact a climactic moment, a pivotal moment in cosmic history, well then we have to pay proper respect and attention to that event as that it also, by the way, was uncomfortable for many of our liberal friends in that it emphasizes Jesus not only his own situated, the fact that he was situated at a time in history, but that he was situated among a particular people. If you read back in the 19th century, theologians liked to talk about the universality of the Christ event. Right? They would start divorcing the Christ event from this Jesus guy, this Jesus of Nazareth, this Jewish carpenter with bad breath and knobby feet. This real guy who went to Shul and who prayed with his shawl and who knew Torah. And the fact that it was easier and easier to talk about Jesus as this universal example of transcendent humanity rather than as a particular Jewish guy made it easier back in the 20th century for people to claim that they were being Christian and at the same time trying to wipe out the Jewish people. I absolutely reject this notion that somehow an orthodox understanding of scripture and of sin necessarily leads to anti-Semitism. I think the roots of theological anti-Semitism are found firmly 
in liberal theology, not in evangelical theology. And so all of these tendencies, all of these symptoms of an allergy to the cross led to what the great theologian Reinhold Niebuhr called, he summed up the liberal approach in this way, a God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. That's not our thing. As evangelicals, we do affirm, Scripture tells us, that Christ did die an atoning death for our sake on the cross. That that is not an optional element for theology. But our affection for the cross and the way we deal with the cross can create a few problems for us, and we should be attentive to those. One, when you think about what the cross is, it was not only an instrument of putting somebody to death. Some people have said, you know, if you're wearing a cross around your neck, it's like you're wearing an electric chair. No, it's way worse than that. The cross was an instrument of torture. I mean, the cross was a, a means by which the Romans demonstrated to anybody who wanted to come up against them what was going to happen to them. Not just death, but a painful, humiliating, long, slow death. And so it can feel a little weird if you're carrying an instrument of torture around your neck or if you have one on your finger, as I do. It also can be a little weird when we sing some of the songs the way we do. You think about that song we sang this morning, Thank You for the Cross, the Mighty Cross. If you took the lyrics out, that would fit really well in any elevator or dentist's office of your choice. I mean, it, you know, we can sing some really gruesome stuff along to schlocky music. And one of the challenges for us when we do worship is to always sort of check to make sure that some of the tunes we're using fit with the lyrics. And I remember back when Mary and I were, were leading the 20-something group at Grace, and somebody did a new version of uh, uh, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. And it was sort of this upbeat kind of, when I survey the wondrous... I'm just, you know, as I look back on it, I'm thinking, yeah, that just didn't, that didn't quite fit. I mean, there's, you know... <sighs> you can sing Amazing Grace to the tune of Gilligan's Island. That doesn't mean you should. Another problem this can create for us is what Dallas Willard has called vampire Christianity. This idea that all we care about is Jesus' blood. And once we get Jesus' blood, then we're set. I, again, when I was working at Grace, we had at one point somebody, you, you saw in your bulletin, there's a blood drive coming up, and Grace used to host blood drives. And somebody wanted to you know, offer like a little poem talking about how since Jesus bled for us, you should also give a pint. And... <laughs> this is the reason that sometimes you just need to have somebody whose responsibility it is to say no. But, but it is true that if, if our focus is entirely and exclusively on Jesus' cross, if all we're concerned with is Jesus' death, then we might miss out on paying proper attention to his life and resurrection. Right? The passion of our Lord, his suffering and death, 
takes up a whole lot of the Gospels, but there's still plenty of stuff going on apart from that. And so if all we look at the Jesus as is the guy who died so we could go to heaven when we die, then we miss all of the parables that he told and all the miracles that he did and all the teaching that he offered. What did he say at the end of Matthew's Gospel? All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to do everything I commanded you. Lo, I'll be with you to the end of the age. How do you know everything he commanded you? Not just by reading the story about his crucifixion, which is why when we preached Matthew, we took a year and a half to do it. Same with John. It's all there. Vampire Christianity gets it right in that we have to receive Jesus' blood to atone for our sin, but that's not the only thing that we need Jesus for. The other thing is, of course, the resurrection. If we focus on Jesus' death, then we can forget that there is another part of the story. Because really, the point is not that we go to heaven when we die. The point is that because we have been cleansed from our sin, we get to participate after we die in the new heavens and the new earth. What Paul talks about in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians isn't just going off in the clouds and floating around with wings. It's, it's that we are raised from the dead to new life. That is our destiny. That is our eternal future. That we are resurrected body and spirit. And not just that, but we get to begin now not only identifying with Jesus in his death, but identifying with him in his resurrected life. And Paul talks about this again. I'll just remind us of what we were studying in Romans last year, chapter 6. Paul says, what are we, what are we going to go on, sinning so that grace may increase? That's stupid. No, we died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Don't you know all of us were baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. If we've been united with him like this in his death, then we'll certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Because anyone who's died has been freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So in the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Don't offer the members of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer the parts of your body to him as instruments of righteousness. For sin shall not be your master, because you're not under law, but under grace. It's not just about getting a get-out-of-hell-free card. It's about being able to identify with Jesus and participate with Jesus in 
his new resurrected life. Not just to be dead to sin, but to be alive to God. But you can't have a resurrection without a body. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, we confess with your people throughout the ages that you were crucified for our sake under Pontius Pilate. That that was for us and for our salvation. That the atoning death you died has dealt with sin once and for all. We are so grateful, Lord Jesus, that you are the one on the hook for our sins and not us. We pray that we would never, ever dare to think about you, to teach about you, or to live for you without a constant and vivid awareness of the sacrifice that you made on our behalf. We pray that we would be a people who would tie the cross. boast in our Savior's name, triumph in his cross. To you be all glory.